O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and our redeemer. Amen. In these weeks during the sermon, as we have been reflecting on God speaking, I've been reflecting a lot on my own practice of listening to God. And I have to confess that I find in my own life that the times I desire to hear God speak most is when I have a difficult decision to make. Uh, When things are going well and easy, it's often easy to neglect listening for God's voice. But when I have to make a difficult decision, perhaps even a dangerous decision, it's then that I desire most for God to speak. Now classically, we call this discernment, asking God to help us discern the best choice, the best path forward. And since I'm in the confessing mood, I also have to confess that I find, again, just in my life, that I too often have the tendency to ask God to help me decide after I've really already made up my mind. And I'm asking God to bless the decision that I've made. I present God not with a genuine question, but a predetermined conclusion. Here, God, this is what I've decided. Don't you agree with me? And we would like to think that God would speak to us in that moment forcefully and directly. No, you idiot. That's not the right way. But God, in a way that we might theologically call a holy frustration, allows us to have it our way so that we might learn all the better why God's way is preferred. Now, the Israelites have been clamoring and bugging God for a king. And ever since they had entered the promised land, they had been led by a group of women and men that we call the judges. Now, these judges were not kings or queens. They were not monarchs. They exercised limited power, generally in times of urgent crisis. The judges were respected and honored, and their stories are some of the more famous stories of the Old Testament. Folks like Joshua and Deborah, Gideon and Samson, Eli, and of course, Samuel. It's these people that we often name our children after. But by the time of Samuel, Israel had grown tired of the judges. And more to the point, they had become envious of other nations and their kings. They demanded that God give them a king. They had made up their mind that what would be best for them as a people is if they had a king. God, give us a king. And right on cue, the man Saul emerges. Now, Saul looks like a perfect choice for a king. If you and I were picking kings, we would pick Saul. He's a loyal son. He's skilled in the family business. He's handsome. He stands a foot taller than anyone else in all of Israel. And so, 
God grants the people their request and directs the judge Samuel, who believed this to be the Lord's choice, to anoint Saul the first king of Israel. He presents him to the people, and all the people shout, Long live the king! And in the beginning, things seemed fine. A month into his reign, Saul repels an attack by the Ammonites, and they shout how great it is to have a king. They celebrate his victory. They give him a special coronation at Gilgal. Things are going great. And so great, in fact, that Samuel thinks he can finally retire. So he tells the people, I'm going into retirement. You have a new king. Here's just one warning. He says, if the people and the king continue to follow the will and commandments of the Lord, then all shall be well. And I bet you can guess the rest of the story. Saul goes the way of so many given absolute power, he begins to think he's infallible. He begins to ignore the commandments of the Lord. He stops talking to God. He stops listening for God in his life. He takes matters into his own hands without giving a thought to whether God is in this or not, whether God's will is being done or not. He ignores the sacrificial laws. He weasels out of his oaths. He gets into a war with the Philistines, then the Moabites, then the Ammonites, then Edom, then Zobah, then the Amalekites, and then the Philistines again. His warring and greedy ways, his lack of personal integrity, and his disregard for the religious life of Israel leads God to withdraw his favor from Saul. And just what Samuel thought would happen did happen. Israel got a king who behaved just like a king. We should have seen this coming. So Samuel returns from retirement, publicly admonishes Saul, and officially withdraws the religious sanction of Saul's reign. Now with that backstory, we pick up the scripture lesson this morning where Samuel is heartbroken and full of grief, convinced he had made the wrong decision, convinced he had failed the people, convinced he had failed God. And the Lord comes to Samuel in his grief and says, the time of your grieving is over. Go and anoint a new king who I will show you. And he commands Samuel to go to Jesse of Bethlehem to anoint the next king. Now Samuel is frightened of this command. And he's frightened for a very good reason. If he goes and anoints a new king, the big problem is there's already another king, Saul, who will not look favorably on this act. And so the Lord tells Samuel, take a cow with him. So if anyone asks, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm just going to sacrifice this cow in Bethlehem. And so he goes. And when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, Jesse and all the other town elders are frightened. They know Samuel is on the outs with the king. They've heard the public declaration that Samuel has made, that he no longer believes the king 
should be the king. Can you imagine if a known public trader walked into your house and said, hey, can I hang out with you for a little bit? They are frightened. They are nervous. But they respect Samuel and all that he had done as the religious leader of the people. Samuel reassures them that he's not there to cause any trouble. He just wants to make a sacrifice to worship the Lord, and then he'll go home. And he invites Jesse and his sons to come and worship with him. Only Samuel knows the true reason for his visit. And so Samuel begins his search for a new king with those same preconceived notions that we bring ourselves He's looking for someone who's wise and strong, handsome and tall, and and most likely the firstborn. And yet, when he meets Jesse's firstborn, Samuel hears from the Lord that this is not the one. Samuel is perplexed. Eliab looks the part. He thinks he'd make a good king, but he's made wrong decisions before, so he trusts the Lord. And he goes to the next son. And he hears a voice saying, Do not look upon the appearance or on his stature or his height, for the Lord does not see as mortals see. Mortals look on the outward appearance. God looks upon the heart. Now what we can miss is that God uses two different words here. To look and to see are different words in Hebrew. You see, the Lord admonishes Samuel for looking, but not yet truly seeing. See, God does not merely look upon the exterior, He can see into the interior. God can see into the heart and knows us more intimately than perhaps we even know ourselves. And that was the problem with Saul. He looked the part, but inside his heart was in love with his own glory. He trusted in his own decisions and did not need to look to God for anything, let alone guidance on how to rule. But God tells Samuel this new king would be chosen on one criteria, not height, nor handsomeness, nor heritage, only heart. Something that God alone can see. And so Samuel keeps going down the line of Jesse's sons, one by one, and again, not a king, not a king, not a king. He keeps going until he's gone by all the sons, and and he declares the Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel turns to Jesse and says, are all your sons here? And as a father with eight sons can sometimes say, oh, that's right, I thought I got that other one. Yeah, he's out in the field. I forgot about him. He's young, though. Surely you don't want him. Samuel says, bring him here. And Samuel looks upon David the nearly forgotten son, and he hears a word from the Lord. Rise and anoint 
him. For this is the one. And without any explanation or any words of ceremony, Samuel uncorks the horn and dumps the oil on David. Now I imagine that all of David's family and Samuel are a bit surprised at all of this. To choose the youngest son from that little town of Bethlehem to be Israel's king is to ignore the usual arrangements of power. It's a decision that we would not have made. What's more, Saul is still ruling as king. And so these men in that dusty village have just committed themselves to treason and to a coup of epic proportion. And none of them could have honestly believed that David would actually ever reign as king. But God had just declared through his prophet that this shepherd boy is his anointed, chosen, beloved son who would rule his people, Israel. Now anyone who knew this family, Jesse's family, they would have never conceived of this. Let me remind you of Jesse's family. Jesse's grandmother was Ruth, an immigrant Moabite woman. His grandfather was Boaz. Boaz's ancestors included Tamar, who was a Canaanite woman nearly executed for adultery, and Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute from Jericho. This is not the lineage to which you look for a great king. But if you've been following the story of God for any length of time, you probably have figured out now that God's future for Israel does not always look clear to human eyes. Nor does God seem to choose the ones we would choose. Nor do God's decisions look like they make much sense according to conventional human wisdom. But that seems to be how God desires to run the world. People that we think have no ability or no business being part of God's famous story end up being the key characters. A barren couple told that they would be ancestors to many nations. A liar and a cheat chosen to be the namesake for Israel. A runaway murderer who can't talk very well ends up being the mouthpiece of God to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. A shepherd boy, nearly forgotten by his dad, ends up being anointed the king. And of course, there's that boy's descendant, 28 generations later, the son of a Galilean carpenter, born in a stable and acclaimed the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God. 
And wouldn't you know what the prophets wrote of that young boy? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Despised and rejected, a man of suffering, one from whom people hide their faces, despised and held in low esteem. Seems that God chooses to use people and places and situations that baffle our mind. You think we would have learned that by now? Not to make decisions based on our outward appearances. Or to ask God not for help, but to bless the decisions we've already made. But we're stubborn. We're convinced that we know best. And so often, we just end up making a mess. Now that's the bad news. But let me finish with the good news. The good news is that God knows that about us and loves us anyway. But God keeps coming back to us after every mistake, every misstep, and every misadventure. When we've chosen poorly and messed things up, when we've clamored and demanded that things happen the way that we want them to, in spite of it all, God still forgives, still loves, and still comes back to us. And do you know what I think the thing that God desires to say most to us in those moments? Well, now that you've tried it your way, how about you try it mine? Thanks be to God. And God continues to speak, continues to desire to talk with us. And even when we mess up, God is all the more willing and ready to give us a second chance. Now that you've tried it your way, Let us try God's. Amen.